this has kind of become one of our like slogans is like we can't recreate combat what can we can recreate smells we can recreate the smell of horse shit and and you know um biscuits baking and (laughs) pipe smoke and campfires what else can we recreate well how about the sounds how about mules braying in the morning how about you know um correct field music um you know, all the, all those sorts of things. And then it's like, well, we could recreate, like Craig said, we could do the tents. We could sew. Why, you know, why not? Let's sew a Sibley tent. Cool. Let's do it. There's a lot of sights and sounds and smells that go with camping in a Sibley tent for a weekend um, for better, for worse. So a, a big part of our thing was like, what can we recreate? And, and that to me has opened up so much free time to like actually get better at drilling so that you actually look like a civil war unit when, when you're out there. Hello and welcome to the civil war regiments podcast. My guests on this episode are Michael Clark and Craig Schneider of the Liberty rifles. The Liberty rifles is a group of living historians who strive to accurately portray the common fighting men of the American civil war while excelling in terms of authenticity and organization. Many of their events feature recreations of full-scale regiments and encampments on actual battlefields. Michael and Craig offer a deep-dive look into the logistics and efforts and expectations behind organizing their events. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome our uh, guest tonight, which is Craig Schneider and Michael Clark of the Liberty Rifles, a living history organization. and I'm really uh, glad to have them on tonight uh, to really deep dive into some of the events that they host. So, Craig and Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. And uh, um, and like I, I was addressing earlier, you know, uh, for many of us living historians, you know, we don't always get a chance to deep dive into conversations. So uh, sometimes a platform like this can allow us to, you know, without the uh duties and details of an event going on we can kind of talk in peace for a few minutes about <laughs> just uh what all the hobby entails so i really appreciate it yeah sure thing so uh i usually begin uh the interview with asking and and this is for both of you uh, how did both of you get involved in uh or find your interest in civil war history where did it all begin yeah, I think for, for me, um, it, it started as an interest more in, in history in general or military history, I guess, than, than Civil War history specifically. Um, and really, I can, I can almost pick the moment. Um, when I was a little kid, my dad used to take me to our local um, little, little airport uh, just for me to watch the plane lands. The planes land as like a five-year-old. And one day we were sitting watching Cessna's land and and a B-17 on its way over to an air show uh, stopped there. And, uh, you know, this is back in the day when you could hop an airport fence and, you know, and uh, check <laughs> things out. And so we did, and the crew brought us onto the plane, and it was right about the time that the Gulf War was starting. So I think my father took the opportunity to you know, explain what a war was, and, um, you know, that this was a, a plane from a war that your grandfather fought in, and then we went to grandpa's house and we talked about that and 
uh, for a long time, you know, my interest in history was was really, you know, military history related. And I was able to talk to my grandfather and, and some of his brothers and, and friends uh, about one war. Um, and at the same time, you know, living here, um, we didn't have access to those battlefields necessarily, but we had plenty of access to Civil War battlefields. So I could talk to veterans about one thing and then you could go to a battlefield and, and see uh, a different aspect of it, uh, just being there at the, at the place where something happened. And mm. my interest in, in Civil War developed, uh, developed out of that. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, it comes from, I think everybody, we all have a love of history in general, uh, to do the things that we do. <laughs> and Michael, how about you? Uh, uh, how did it all start for you? Uh, so for me, um, you know, I was born in Richmond. My dad was in the army, um, and my family's from Maryland, but they'd moved to Richmond. Um, and, my dad then got uh, stationed over in Stanton when I was like two. Um, so we moved to Stanton, Virginia. Um, and uh, he was a he was a recruiter for the National Guard. And uh, the National Guard did this series of prints, uh, Don Troiani prints. Um, I think the one is like Alabamians at, at first Manassas. And then oddly enough, because it was kind of the catalyst for this podcast, but the other one was the first Minnesota one. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they, it was for the National Guard that he did these two prints. Um, and uh, so he, they had this little room in our house that they called the library that was basically just a foyer from one room to another. But uh, they, my dad had the Time Life, uh, the Silver Time Life series. Oh, yeah. And, um, and, and those two pictures were on the wall along with, uh, it was a, he had two, uh, framed pictures, one of Robert E. Lee and one of Stonewall Jackson, um, mm. like the real classic 1880s ones. And, um, so for me growing up in the Valley and, you know, just being a little kid, it was like kind of in a lot of ways, what Craig said, you know, I, I'd sit and look at those books when I was little and it was so tangible cause you could go and see the sites. Like you could go be there and like I said my family is all from Maryland and uh, you know when we come up and see my grandparents um, I think you know my parents bird just kind of like pulls down and wears ass out a little bit kind of thing <laughs> and um, so you know they took Gettysburg and, and of course like I said all the valley fields and um, so that that's kind of where it started for me and and then uh, in terms of reenacting uh, my grandmother worked at at this restaurant called Coz uh, in Therma. A lot of, there was like reenacting groups that uh, after Remembrance Day, they would go there and have, have their, their, their like yearly meeting. Um, and so <laughs> uh, when we moved back to Maryland when I was 12, um, I begged my grandmother to, to like introduce me to them, you know, like after Remembrance Day. So I went and watched Remembrance Day and then my parents took me over there, introduced me to um, one of the units, and, and that ended up being uh, the, the first group I was in for a little while. Um, but that was, I think I was um, 12 or 13 at that point. And it just took off from there. Wow. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it always does. It always <laughs> skyrockets from there. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, um, I do envy you, and I envy you guys because, uh, yeah, growing up so close to those battlefields, all the, the big ones up there, but also, uh, um, in a way, uh, I'm in central Alabama, so I envy the Liberty Rifles in the sense where <laughs> you guys can do a big living history at all those amazing battlefields up there. And, and don't get me wrong, and for those of you listening, yes, the West has plenty of battlefields. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Maryland, Virginia, uh, you know, there's so many battlefields just packed in in a small area, even that uh, it's impressive. So uh, I envy in that regard. But uh, but no, I always love hearing uh, the backstories of how everybody uh, dives in and how everyone gets involved. And uh, so my next question leading off of all that is uh, where and how did both of you get involved with the Liberty Rifles? And on that same line, where and how did the Liberty Rifles begin? Uh, when were they founded? When were they organized? Yeah, so um, the LR was founded and organized in 2000. Um, the couple key players uh, were Jeff Hayes, um, Jerry Hornbaker, uh, and Chris Anders. Uh, they, were, they were kind of um, three of the original uh, founding members that really kind of spearheaded uh, everything. Um, shortly after that, I, I think there was a, um, and I don't want to get talking about something I, I wasn't a part of, but um, I, I know Chris Anders ended up leaving. Um, and so then it was kind of Jeff and Jerry. Um, but it, the unit started in 2000 and then it's just kind of um, gone through. We kind of, laugh there's kind of been like the lr 2.0 and then the lr 3.0 and kind of these different times where new leadership came in and kind of reinvigorated and, and took the group to like the next step and to the next step and um you know like cody harding was was one of those initial uh like i i think around maybe around like 2007 or so him and paul bacadoro took over um and uh, in different formats, Kyle Stetz was heavily involved, um, you know, in, in like the late 2000s. Um, and, uh, and then Paul Bacadoro, I think, was president from 2010 uh, to maybe 2015 or 16. Um, also, John Pagano was, was really instrumental in, in the early days of the LR. Um, speedy um there's there's a ton of names that really for me i i i joined in my first event was uh in um let me see i gotta think about it for a second <laughs> my first event was the 145th spotsylvania uh where where they um they had the big trenches and everything. I, I, yeah, that was Spotsylvania. So that would have been, um, no, sorry, the 140th, the 140th. So that would have been 2004. And yeah. I, I have a cool story about it. And it's actually, there's so many people that I looked up to when I was younger. And, and a lot of them I still look up to, most of them actually. Um, and I had this very formative experience that's kind of guided a lot of how I ran the group when I was president. Um, 
and really how I think I was, we were able to expand our membership so much. Um, but so we went to the 140th Spotsylvania, me and a couple of my buddies, and we were in like, I would call it a better mainstream group. Like people cared about uniforms and stuff to a degree, but everybody slept in tents and, um, you know, not good tents either and not at appropriate times. Um, so like, you know, we were kind of like starting to push the envelope in our group and, and, um, really starting to get, you know, more hardcore. And, uh, we were walking around Sutler row at the 140 Spotsylvania and, um, you know, we're, we're wearing blue, gray, crazy jackets and stuff. And, um, John Pagano is walking up the other way. I'd never met John before. And John stops me and, or stopped us. It was me and my friend, Joel and Matlock. And he's like, Hey, who are you guys with? Like, just not hi. Hi, I'm John. And he's like, Hey, who are you guys with? And we were like, uh, first battalion A and B. And he was like, is everybody in first battalion A and B wearing blue, gray, crazy jackets. And we were like, no, we're the only ones. Like we were pretty, <laughs> you know, like we, we were like, man, he, he noticed our, our, our shit was cool, you know? And, um, he was like, well, you guys should come camp with us tonight. We're down in the trench. We're camping in the trench. You guys should come down there. And we were like, well, are you serious? Yeah, you should come down there. And we were like, thank you so much. He's like, you guys look awesome. You, you, you should come out with us sometime. And then, so he walks off and then this is so absurd, but we, we had this like lengthy discussion, like our mainstream group is going to get upset with us if we go with them. So should we do it? Should we not do it? Cause they're our friends and we don't want to like leave them hanging, but Holy smokes. Like we could, we could go be down in a trench with, with those guys. They're like hardcore. And like, you know, it was this real kind of like gnashing of teeth. And we ended up, which is probably the right thing to do. We, we didn't leave our pals. Um, you know, we, we went back, but that was like, the seed that was planted mm -hmm. and that uh so that was in may and then i did my first event with the lr in july for one of their battlefield walks um so and, and then from there it was you know just that's i've been in the group since since july of 2004 um but i've kind of used that experience with john where like you know in, encouraging young guys that look cool to like push themselves a little bit and not be afraid to, to like say like, Hey man, you got a great look. Like you should be doing stuff with us. Um, <laughs> it, it's not really the other people. It's just you. We've all heard these stories a million times and seen them a million times. When somebody's got to be better, it's not gonna, it's not going to go away. Yeah. Um, it, they're, they're going to keep pushing and trying and, and for better, for worse. And I really loved a lot of those guys in my mainstream group and still keep in touch with a lot of them. Now there was animosity at the time, but, um, you know, they were threatened cause they had a thing going and, and now like, you know, they, they didn't want their friends to leave and they were kind of insecure about it and probably didn't handle it the best way. And, um, you know, but so that, that's a long story to how I got into yeah. the bar and, and, uh, um, and kind of the initial founding of it. And uh, and I know uh, I don't think any organization or any group in reenacting this without a little drama here and there. Sure. <laughs> but uh, but Craig, uh, how about you? When did you join uh, the Liberty Rifles? So um, so I didn't get into into the hobby quite as young as, as Mike did. I had um, when I was growing up, there was always a you know a small local reenactment in the in town, and it was it was you know the typical thing you'd imagine and. I 
you know, even as even as a high school kid, I, I watched that and I was like, this this ain't right. <laughs> and uh, I never I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to to get into the hobby uh, until I went to college. I went to Gettysburg College and as a freshman, the the I saw the school had its own little reenacting group and some of the guys that were in it were um, were, were LR guys, um, you know, like uh, Eric Esser and Jason Patton and and some of those guys. So they were the ones that were running the, the little college group at the time. So I did my first events with those guys and ended up bouncing around between a couple different groups with uh, some friends of mine I made in college. And um, I ended up uh, taking a job that had me away from the hobby for two or three years in the in the middle of the 150ths. And when I finally got back, um, you know, one of my one of my buddies, Jeff Baldwin, who, uh, who I reenacted with for a while, said, "Hey, uh, you know, you should see what the LR is doing these days. It's it's pretty cool. Come out and do come out and do an event." And uh, I did, and I think I don't know, Mike, what was it about a maybe a year after that, uh, we did that uh, Point Lookout Prisoner Exchange thing at the end of the one fiftieths. It, it was two thousand fifteen, and yeah. the only. I, I can't ever remember anything, but <laughs> I use the sesquicentennial calendar to remember <laughs> when things happen. So yeah, it was that was 2015. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, 2015 at that event. I think Mike and I uh, it was at the end of the 150ths, and Mike had gone through the the whole 150ths, and I I may have luckily missed most of it, but uh, <laughs> what I saw of it didn't didn't please me too much. So Mike and I had a had a good conversation with with a couple other folks that were there and thought about ways that we could uh do things on our own i guess and and that was uh that was the the seed for the i don't know what is it lr 3.0 or 4.0 <laughs> yeah well in, in a way i guess too you know after a cycle like that after a big 150 of cycle it is kind of time to kind of question some things or make some changes you know when it's not the big anniversaries and you know it's kind of a time to reset yep but vanilla so that's interesting as uh, uh how you guys got in and you know um so kind of getting into when you guys were both involved in here and you touched a little on this but you obviously take great care and preparation to get all the details right in your living history programs and to give the public as close as possible a look into the life of the daily soldier in the civil war and for both of you can you talk a little on what that means to you uh to get the details right uh in the hobby i think mike and i could probably both talk about it from the, the same perspective i think we you know if you're going to do something we want to do it right but also you know i think what what we'd seen in our earlier years of the hobby was uh, a lot of good attempts to do things right um, that produced some really cool events, but maybe left things lacking in in other ways, or um, things that were just avoided, or excuses were made for things that people said you just you just can't do this. It, it's there's not enough people, there's not enough interest, there's not enough money, whatever whatever the excuse was to. To, to not be able to do something correctly. And um, I don't know if it's me and Mike just being spiteful or, or whatever it is, but uh, but uh, for a lot of those things that, you know, we were told you couldn't do or you shouldn't do or nobody will want to do, 
um, we, we sort of said, hey, well, watch this. <laughs> And, uh, and we'd go and do it, and we'd figure out a way to do it. Be, be it, you know, I, I think campaigners sometimes don't, uh, they have an aversion to tents or something like that, as if, as if soldiers spent four years and, and never had a roof of any kind over their heads. And obviously that's not true. <laughs> soldiers slept the majority of their nights in tents, but, you know, at, campaigners don't have wagons campaigners don't have a sea of hand-sewn tents because that's the way they're supposed to be well you can <laughs> you <laughs> can have all those things uh you have to go get a group of guys that are interested in you know finding you know in an 800 set of busted wagon running gear and uh you know finding one of the guys that is a blacksmith and can fix the irons and guys that are carpenters that can put it together and somebody that'll go to the archives and dig up the original plans for an army wagon uh, your other buddy who you know has two horses that you know used to be owned by the amish and pull logs well you know they can be trained to pull in civil war harness too if you get 20 guys together with a case of beer you can sew a tent together by hand it's, it's all doable um, so i think that's now that's part of it, and I'm sure Mike has plenty of other, you know, examples as well. Well, and kind of something that came to mind while Craig was talking, and I, thing he said, um, I think part of. So, we kind of had a revelation at the, at the end of of the Sesquicen. Um and a big part of that was like, you know, I would. I would go to these events, these 150th events, and we would have, you know, the LR was smaller back then too. I think we had like maybe 125 people on paper, but we'd get like a 70 man company out to something. And, you know, the organizers would like put effort into like doing some cool things and there would be all this excitement. And then we would go do the battle and, and it was just the dumbest thing in the world. And, and, you, and you could look down the line and, and like 90% of our dudes weren't even loading their musket because they didn't want to clean worth it to like stand there and like pop blank rounds at like, you know, dudes that don't look like Civil War soldiers, dudes that are like, you know, flailing around and flopping around and like borderline like, you know, untasteful kind of behavior in, in my opinion. And so, like, I kind of, for me personally, I started thinking, like, why do so many guys show up to this? And then they obviously don't like this. Um, and it was like, well, what do they like about it? And, well, they like camping and they like drilling. For I mean, maybe people don't love drilling, but, like, it's something to think about and work towards and all this stuff. And I was like, why? why did we just spend like literally six hours on a Saturday, like forming up for the battle, going out to the battle, doing the battle, coming back from the battle, cleaning your muskets after the battle. And it's like, it didn't come anywhere close to recreating anything even remotely similar to civil war combat. And we just wasted the meat of a Saturday, you know, like the biggest chunk of time. So, yeah. so for me, I, this has kind of become, one of our like slogans is like, we can't recreate combat. What can we, we can recreate smells. We can recreate the smell of horse shit and, and, you know, 
um, biscuits, baking, and <laughs> pipe smoke, and campfires, what else can we recreate? Well, how about the sounds? How about mules braying in the morning? How about, you know, um, correct field music? Um, you, you know, all the, all those sorts of things. And then it's like, well, we could recreate, like Craig said, we could do the tents. We could sew. Why, you know, why not? Let's sew a Sibley tent. Cool. Let's do it. There's a lot of sights and sounds and smells that go with camping in a Sibley tent for a weekend, um, for better, for worse. So a, a big part of our thing was like, what can we recreate? And, and that to me has opened up so much free time to like actually get better at drilling so that you actually look like a civil war unit when, when you're out there and, and not like, well, we don't got no time to drill battle at nine o'clock because the battle's at 11, you know, like that's how reenactments. And I, I have to make this distinction. They weren't always like that. Mainstreamers yeah. used to take those things very seriously. And it's, it's only been, in my opinion, like the last 15 years or so, I, I feel like I came in the tail end of when, because like I remember first battalion ANV, we, we would fall in and have a battalion drill first thing in the morning Saturday before anybody had breakfast. Um, so they, they took the, the national regiment took that stuff seriously. And it's mm -hmm. only been over time, like maybe the last 15 years, like I said, that these mainstream groups have gotten complacent. Their membership's getting older. They, they don't want to scare people away. So rather than expecting things of people, they, they lower the expectations, right? Like, so like, we don't want to upset anybody. So we'll just, make it as broad of, you know, a general expectation as possible rather than I think one of the keys to our success has been expecting things of people. Cause it's fun and challenging. Like, Oh, I need to make my kit better. Like, Oh I, I, man, this is really looking great. Like, Oh, I was the weak guy in stacking arms this time. Like I need to, I need to read Casey's again, man. Like, so there's like, it, it's, it keeps it fresh and interesting for the individual reenactor to continually improve and want to be not want to be the weak link. Um, but so, yeah, for me, I, I think a big part of us being as detailed as possible and focusing on the details was like, what can we recreate? What can we reproduce? We can't reproduce battles. So let's not worry about those. And I'm not saying that like, I'm vehemently opposed to ever doing a battle reenactment or anything like that. I just, in general, think there's much better uses of time and experiences to be had. And, you know, when the right one comes along, like, I, I think we're going to send a company like that. Roach puts a lot of hard work into that event. It, it, there's a cool aesthetic to it. Um, the people commanding are, are, are great people, Pat Landrum, Rob Warren. So like, you know, that's something that's worth our time to support. And but I'll still say I don't think it'll be a very realistic vision of combat. Um, and uh, and that's kind of how we moved in a direction of like. Let's just focus on the nitty gritty details of what it was like for a soldier to be in the army. And I think even when we did uh, probably the last combat event that we organized just for ourselves was uh was was the early's raid event a year or so ago and that was mike i think that was probably the first combat thing we'd agreed to organize or involve ourselves in in years and 
Yes. It was it was only because we could do it on hundreds and hundreds of acres and it was an engagement mm. that had zero casualties. Um, <laughs> lasted lasted minutes and was at 800 yards. Uh, so, you know, we were you know, we were able to recreate, you know, Mosby's men harassing a, a company of of uh, federal infantry that were serving as flankers a quarter mile away from a wagon train and you know, we could we could actually recreate that to, to scale. And we we had, um, you know, the, that company of Mosby's men had a mountain howitzer with them and we brought a mountain howitzer with us. And we uh, that was the first event that we'd actually tested out firing. Well, we tested it before, but it was the first time I shot projectiles of some sort uh, at my friends, <laughs> knowing that uh, knowing that they would uh, disintegrate and not not fly 800 yards as a uh, to them, um, but yeah, so we were able to do that. We were able to get the details right of a of a of a horse artillery uh, platoon, which uh, I don't think the hobby seen in a long time, if ever. And we were actually able to load projectiles, and we brought Speedy along to do uh, pyrotechnics, and didn't tell anybody. So, you know, when we shot a mountain howitzer 800 yards away, three seconds later, there was uh, you know. A, explosion going off in a tree above somebody's head and probably wondering if I was shooting at him. So, you know, that kind of thing is what, uh, is what we would do for combat. But, uh, yeah, for the other stuff that we do, it's really, uh, it's really a day in the life of a, of a soldier rather than, you know, that 0.1% of their time that they spent in combat. And I think that's why we call uh, a lot of our events, rather than like a reenactment or a living history, we, we tend to call them a, a soldier life experience event um, for, for our immersive things is, uh, is how we term them. It's true. They, they are reenactments. They're reenactments without battles. Like, yeah. that's the way to think of it. Oh, yes. And and uh, you actually, um, I, I just reminded myself of a couple of events uh, that did involve a little fighting and uh I'm not sure if, if you both were there or not at uh, Brown's Mill in uh, Georgia. Yeah. Uh, it was in Noonan, Georgia. Yeah, we were um, there. I was with the Armored Guards Company, and we thought uh, you guys had the little artillery detachment. And, uh, and that was the first time for me at an event like that where we were fighting mounted artillery. And uh, a disclaimer real quick, uh, you know, you guys are attached to a, another group called First Section, that does authentic artillery. And to me, that could be its whole podcast on its own, maybe someday. That'd be great. <laughs> that's so detailed. But, uh, but what, uh, what I remember from that event at Brown's Mill, just a little event uh, down there at the battlefield, and uh, I was impressed. Just uh, <laughs> we were going across this field, and we were uh, in skirmish order going across the field. And I remember uh, seeing you all uh, pulling the artillery around, and it's like, I blinked and you guys were already shooting at us. Like, uh, and I just, like, I just loved how efficient it was and just how like, wow, like they un unlimbered and started firing like that. And, uh, something you don't see at just everywhere, <laughs> but, uh, that was a neat experience. And of course, um, just recently or within the last year was a uh, Rosecrans pursuit. Yep. And um, I had interviewed um, Ivan Ingram earlier this season to get his insights on a lot of that. And you had a few uh, pyrotechnics of that one, too. Yeah. But uh, but one thing I loved about Rosecrans Pursuit is 
We didn't do that much fighting there. There wasn't really that many shots fired, but I, I just loved uh, seeing like a Union Army on the march, and it felt like a full army on the march because you know we had two hundred so infantry. Then there was a whole wagon detail. Then there was the mounted artillery, an ambulance, like a, uh, and we had several little checkpoints that we, you know, encamped at, and it kind of felt like several days worth of marching within one event and you know even though we're basically going in circles on the same property but it was it gave a good enough impression and i i really took a lot away from that event just really getting a feel of what an army on the move uh, is like would have been like and uh and i mentioned this to ivan and maybe you guys can mention this a little bit how uh i remember a sunday morning when we were getting ready to march out um first section is getting situated, but it's total blackness, total dark in the morning. And I'm like, how in the world are those guys getting their horses ready and everything? And it is pitch black, you know, and, but that was impressive to me um, experiencing that. But if you guys have any input on, on those events. Well, I, I'll say in terms of the horses, that that's no accident. Those guys, they, they get together multiple times a year to practice that and again just like just like infantry drill when we do one of our winter quarters events everybody's getting instruction on on how to deal with a team of horses and and mm. and and get them in harm it's guys like mike jones dan schmeler all the have been so helpful and patient with with all of us infantry guys, or maybe we'd done, you know, some artillery on a static gun or something. And like one of the coolest things was the one of the first um, winter camps we did uh, with artillery, we were portraying the Fluvanna artillery. And a lot of the guys there, I'd say probably like 75% had never really been around horses. And, you know, in a winter camp, the horses are all around you. And so like Friday, they, they, you know, they were taking like a, a 12 foot buffer zone around the back of a horse, you know, like and skittish and nervous and all this stuff. And then like by Sunday, they're like elbowing the horse in the butt, moving them over, picking up their hooves, picking them out. Like, so, you know, in like a weekend, guys became to me that much closer to, to the life of a 19th century person because everybody knew how to deal with horses in the 19th century and and the 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 section via jeff baldwin and mike jones and and the l all the guys that have poured time and energy into that has been just mind-blowing in my opinion and, and such a important uh feature of our events and and um i i can't I can't thank those guys enough for all the hard work that they've they've put in to, to making that a, a reality. They also, oh, for uh, sure. they also uh, told me and Mike that we pretty much have to learn how to ride, and we did. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so now Mike and I have horses, and <laughs> so. Oh wow! So you guys weren't always, uh, you know, mounted in, in your event. It all started because of the artillery. Well, I don't even know if it started so much. Because of the artillery, I think maybe when we first did an event with uh, the, the very first event that first section ever came together is first section. 
Um, I think Mike, you were doing infantry and I went and did artillery with those guys. And, you know, we got, we got used to the horses. We realized how much of an impact they could have on an event. And it was about the same time that, um, you know, Mike and I were realizing if you're going to be portraying a regiment, um, especially, you know, if it's at any moment other than when they were in combat and combat, you knew they dismounted, you, you really need to be on a horse if you're a field officer. Um, yeah. It's just something that every single day, you know, if they were commanding that regiment or marching with that regiment, they were they were mounted, you know, except for, you know, the occasional time they went into combat and, and, and chose to dismount, you know, in that engagement. And so I think the first event that Mike and I were ever mounted at as field officers was prelude to invasion. No, no, it was Sailor's Creek. Oh, Sailor's Creek. That's right. Which was 2000. That was uh, April 2000. And Greg and I, um, Anna Wilson, um, who uh, is uh, married to Dave Wilson, if anybody that knows Dave that runs um, Victorian Photography oh, Studio, yes. his his wife uh, owns a horse, a great horse named Burrito, and, uh, and Anna was nice enough to meet with Craig and I on a weekly basis, um, probably for about six months, we would, Craig and I, after work... <laughs> We would go meet up with Anna and she'd be yelling at us, you know, get your, get your butt out, get your chest out, you know, like all, all this <laughs> stuff. And she whipped us into shape pretty quick, but no, I, I had never even been on a horse prior to that other than like maybe at a carnival or something. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, exactly like Craig said, it was, again, if you're going to do something, do it right. Like, and, and for us, such a big part of I think what's important to us and I think what's bred our success is the importance of scale so we felt like we were getting to the point where we could get eight companies together and so okay that's a battalion a battalion has to have field officers field officers have to be mounted um, and then too it, the real tough thing is like not only do you have to learn how to ride so like as a novice rider I'm, I'm sitting on this horse trying to remember, you know, close column by division on the first division, right in front battalion, right face, you know, and, and keep the damn horse straight telling Craig to head off and find out where eighth company is and why they're not in line yet. It's, it, it was really challenging at first and, and still, I, I mean, I would still call myself a very novice rider, but, um, you know, it gets a little bit easier with time. Um, but yeah, we neither of us we <laughs> on horses for sure. We know, um, uh, uh, given an example like that and a, a big command like that, which uh, a private in the ranks when he hears a command like that sounds like nonsense. But I do like how it's really you know you give a command like that, but then by the time it trickles down all the way to either your captain or sergeant giving you instruction. It's not always that complicated once you yeah, hear. You're just doing you know, the right face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. It's a mouthful of words for you to do a right face. Yes. <laughs> and, well, you know, on this same on this same note, you know, uh, so you guys have been fortunate with the amount of people involved and the membership of the Liberty Rifles. You know, most of your events have full-scale regiments, and uh, this is a Civil War Regiments podcast. I've always been um, 
ever since I've been involved in Civil War history, the regiments is what drew me in to learning Civil War history. And and uh, so for me, seeing and being a part of your events and, and being a part of a full-scale regiment, really, I, I love it. And it's, uh, it's really impressive. But, um, you know, uh, when you do this, though, uh, you know, obviously, you know, if you have a 500-man regiment or a 200-man regiment, it's not, you know, what's the percentage as far as actual members of the Liberty Rifles versus associates or other groups like myself, Army Guards coming in, joining you? How much of it is actual, like, Liberty Rifles members? So um, the LR has maybe 275-some-odd members right about now. Wow. Uh, and I think with a lot of the different groups in the hobby that you specifically the ones you mentioned i think there's plenty of crossover in membership between them too so i mean i don't know probably uh we try to keep most of our regiments with at least one whole wing of the regiment um, just exclusively lr um, and then the other wing of the regiment is usually uh it might have some lr guys in it and we'll have um, other groups as well that are that are over in you know the other four or five companies. Yeah, and that's um, to chime in on what Craig said. So, something that um, we are really uh, that's just important to understand about us is we we don't expect exclusive membership from members. That's something that I, I've always been super opposed to. If if you're in the armory guards and you want to join the LR and you want to be a member of the army armory guards, that's great. And if we did go to a reenactment and you decided that you wanted to, to go with that group instead of our group, I think that's great too. Like I, I'm, I'm really into like, it, it's your hobby and you should be going wherever that, wherever you get the most joy out of an event. And I, I never understood these groups that were super territorial and, and kind of like what I was saying earlier, you're, you're insecure. You're afraid you're losing a guy and then you end up scaring him away because you're acting crazy rather than, <laughs> rather than just being like, yeah, man, go ahead and hope we'll see you at the next one. And, and for me, cause I'm super competitive, like what's going on in my mind is like, I'm going to make you regret that you didn't come with us. When you see the pictures of what we did, when you see what we look like out there, when you see us drilling in the morning while your guys are sleeping, you'll wish you'd have come with the LR. And like, that's the only, like you can't force someone. Nobody's going to want to go with your unit. If you just made them feel bad and beat them up for like going with another group, you, you got to make <laughs> them want to go, you know, like, so we just do the coolest stuff. We do it the hardest. We, you know, we look good doing it. We do it right. And that's what makes people choose us. And I've never like, you know, you could have as many affiliations as you want, you know, and you may choose to go with them and choose to go with us sometimes. And it's, it's all good. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. You have to have the right attitude about everything. And, um, and I've been fortunate, yeah, to be part of, of, uh, several of your events and, uh, they've been memorable ones too. Um, a uh, little round top and uh, just recently first Minnesota, which we'll dive in in a minute. But uh, um, one thing I did want to touch on too, and maybe this is a question for Craig um, as far as logistics go. So, okay, you guys recruit or raise uh, enough guys to do a full scale regiment. 
but and uh and you know i see on facebook the, a lot of the work that you guys are doing ahead of time preparing rations but that just seems like a, a daunting task and i know you guys have a good team of guys i'm sure to help but as far as the work it takes to recreate a full-scale regiment keep those guys fed uh have a good emergency plan and whatnot and uh if you could give a little insight on that yeah i think for you know anytime we're recreating an event that has a regiment in the field especially for an immersive event that you know will incorporate moving or you know uh the wagons and the horses along with the infantry regiment for every hour you spend at the event Mike and I and the 20, 30 other people that are that are working to put on the event are spending you know, 10 hours worth of their time planning for it. Um, so there's there's always tons and tons of work that goes into it from, you know, making boxes for things and sewing bags and putting tents together and bagging up rations and figuring out how you're going to get 24 horses from this place to this place and you know oh we also have to use this trailer to haul two things and then be a shuttle trailer and so there's 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 lots of stuff that that goes along with the prep work and then even within the event um you know when you used to see regiments that would you know be composed of 40 guys we were always talking about mini battalions in the hobby where it's just <laughs> a group shows up and they're a regiment or they're a company and they basically run their own mini event within the event and it's it's not to scale and you know it's not the the activities that are occurring within that quote-unquote battalion have no resemblance to what happened in an actual civil war battalion on top of all this planning you have to do beforehand we have to run a regiment the way a regiment was run. So, you know, you, we talk about the staff in a regiment, and, you know, who, who's ever seen an AQM or an ACS you know, at an event before? Um, we have them at our events because we have to have them. <laughs> because Mike and I, who are trying to run a regiment, and, you know, Mike's trying to drill a regiment, and I'm trying to make sure everybody's where they need to be, there actually needs to be an ACS and a commissary sergeant and an AQM and a quartermaster sergeant to make sure that people get fed. So I don't have to think about it. to make sure that get fed. So I don't have to think about it to make sure that, you know, we don't leave pots and skillets and, you know, equipment at our one campsite when we're going to be three miles away for the next one. So, it actually, it actually does, you know, help you when you understand how a regiment's run and then just try to do it. Uh, you realize why things were done the way they were done. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It really does take a lot of time and, and effort and, and it pays off um, with the way it is because that's how it was. I mean, you really, I really appreciated just looking around camp and you're seeing a camp function as it would have, you know, you have, you know, all the individual companies and you have the individual duties and assignments and, and uh, you really get to see, yeah, that daily life and activities of a daily schedule, uh, yep. which in the Union Army was very scheduled. Yep. <laughs> uh, and so you get to see it all play out. So I really appreciate that. And, and you know, uh, to talk a little bit about um, location, you know, many of your events are on actual battlefields or uh, whether they be, you know, uh, national parks, national battlefield parks, uh, historic sites. 
Um, how easy uh, has that been for some of the events you guys have hosted, um, most recently with Gettysburg, of course, but, um, but how easy or difficult is it to uh, grant those opportunities? And uh, I'm assuming you, know, you have good connections with the National Park Service to begin with, I'm sure. Yeah, um, so, I mean, there's a couple things that I think are important to touch on. Number one, um, so much of what we do is defined by what we don't like in the hobby. And I'm not trying to be contentious or, or be a jerk or anything like that. But uh, I, I would say almost everything, not maybe not everything, but many of the things we do are in direct opposition to what we see other people doing that we think is not worthwhile doesn't make sense or just downright goofy. And one of those things is, you know, portraying the battle of cold Harbor in Neshaminy, New Jersey or Pennsylvania or wherever the hell Neshaminy is like to me to, and to go back to what we touched on in the very beginning, like the, the tangible nature of the fact that we can go where they went and, and, be on those spots or be in close proximity. Like I, you know, these people at the Daniel lady farm, you know, they, they're doing Spurk, they're doing Shiloh, they're doing Gettysburg, they're doing world war two stuff. Like, and to me, when we do Sharpsburg, I want to see Washington County, Maryland in mid September. And I want to feel the temperature. I want to, I want to see the, the corn. I, I want to be in those spots. And I think there's really something um, almost, I mean, not, I don't want to sound like a cornball, but there's something almost spiritual to being at the place mm-hmm. at the time and, and kind of connecting in history. And, and by the same token, you know, remembering them. And, and making sure other people remember them and what they did. I mean, you, you know, you went to first Minnesota, you were there on July 2nd, man. Like you, you felt the heat, you, you know, um, you, you, oh, I did. Spot, you know, um, so to me being in close proximity, if, you know, obviously it's not always going to be possible, but we try to always be within, you know, 10 miles or so of where something happened. Um, now, uh, a huge part of that is the relationships we have with um, different groups. The American Battlefield Trust is a huge partner of ours. Um, mm-hmm. That's where we'll be actually doing uh, the Antietam event. We'll be on the real farm, which is uh, a part of the battlefield, but it's owned by American Battlefield Trust. Um, and like Warlike, Prelude, uh, those were, were all on... American Battlefield Trust property. Oh, wow. Um, we also have, uh, and, and, it, and they happened where that stuff happened, which is really cool to me. And, um, you know, land is a big thing for us. So a lot of times Craig and I's process is, okay, what land do we have access to? Mm. All right. What happened there? Okay. Who was there when it happened? Are there any smaller regiments? <laughs> 200, <laughs> 250. 300, you know, okay, yep. 
were they carrying anything super weird like Lorenz's or something like that? Nope. That's the unit we're going to portray. That's like the filter down process. So, um, but so not to get too far off of your question, but um, yes, the National Park Service, uh, the Shenandoah Valley Battlefield Foundation, we've done a number of events with them, Port Republic last year. Um, uh, you know, Gettysburg was amazing to work with. Um, Chris Gwynn, the chief of interpretation, is, is so good at his job and, um, you know, really what was just a, a huge, um, you know, cheerleader for us and wanting to push the envelope there and do something bigger that hadn't been done like that. Um, in talks right now with uh, Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania, who some of their Rangers were at the event at the first Minnesota and, and they, they do something similar down there. Um, wow. So, you know, a lot of it's networking, a lot of it's good relationships. Like, you know, you can imagine you're not going to get invited back if you trash the parking lot at Gettysburg Battlefield, right? So yeah. what that meant was Craig and Jeff Baldwin and Mackenzie Blair and I, uh, after the event is over on Sunday, after the camp was all cleaned up and policed, which we had a number of people stay behind and help us with that, then we drove over to the parking lot and walked the whole thing grid by grid, picking up chicken bones and, and you know, um, different stuff. I mean, everybody left. I'm, I'm everybody left it in really good shape. There was five or six pieces of trash out of, you know, 250 guys that were parked there. So um, I'm, I'm not complaining about that. I'm only saying that the reputation we have is there for a reason because we do a good job. We don't say crazy stuff when we're interpreting to the public. Um, <laughs> you know, th there aren't any people spouting off, off crazy lost cause stuff or, or super self-righteous, uh, you know, like woke stuff or anything like that. We just stick to, <laughs> we just stick to history and, yeah. and we tell it objectively and um, with facts and, and that's what it is. And so that's why we get invited back. Um, that's why we have a great reputation. Um, that's why, you know, state parks and um, battlefield preservation organizations, et cetera, all continue to work with us. Um, we've also donated uh, over $50,000 in the last five years to battlefield preservation um, uh, organizations. So we just with them and um, it's continued to yield great opportunities for us. Well, that's great. And uh, and American Battlefield Trust is such a great organization right now and the work that they're doing. And and so for to work in tandem with a group like that is is really great, uh, especially with their social media on the rise and all the videos they do. Uh, that helps a lot, I'm sure. Yep. But, you know, you just gave me uh, one idea, though. Um, <laughs> if you guys do a future Gettysburg event, you could recreate the entire Irish Brigade. <laughs> <laughs> well... So this is again, conversation we've had. The, the thing about like so much, like if you're going to do something, you have to be able to do it right. And that's, that's like the golden rule for us. And exactly. to be perfectly honest, I think we could get enough guys for a small brigade. The problem is we could never get enough capable company officers, first sergeants and second sergeants. Is it like, if you think about it for a moment, you have to have 10 good 
company officers that know what they're doing. Then you need 10 first sergeants. Then you need 10 second sergeants. If you triple that to do a, a three regiment brigade, it's just not out yeah. there. And I don't mean that as disrespect to anybody, but the guys that we have that step in and do, you know, line officer stuff, they work their butts off and they're good at it. And it takes a lot of practice and time to just do kind of the basic rudimentary stuff that we do at events. And, you know, there just isn't that many people that are willing to spend hours and hours and hours studying to then be able to translate that into a functional brigade. Um, they're just, I, I don't think it's out there at this point in reenacting maybe in, you know, there were enough people in 1999, I'm sure, but you know, <laughs> we're kind of, it's the, the numbers just aren't there. Well, you know, you could do the Irish Brigade after Gettysburg because they only had like 200 guys at that point. Right. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, with that being said, um, so obviously uh, you're fresh off just a few weeks now, fresh off of uh, the first Minnesota event at Gettysburg, which was a huge success even amid the crazy weather. Uh, but like pictures and videos have been viral online. Uh everybody's still kind of talking about it everywhere. Um, there was one moment and I, I'd like to hear from both of you, like what, um, if you have any, uh, favorite moment uh, from it, but, uh, I know one moment I saw and a lot of people saw was that time after the battalion drill where those two little boys came up in the uniforms and you let them give commands to the battalion. You know, um, uh, I hope those kids grow up with that in mind, but uh, I know everybody was tickled when that happened. Uh, so for me, that was a cute moment too, but, but always being on the actual ground uh, means something. And, uh, but for you guys, uh, what, what was your biggest takeaway after that event? For me, I think um, I was impressed with um, not, not the quality of the, the spectator, but, the, the quality of the questions, I think, that mm. we're asking. Uh, you often hear, you know, reenactors like to talk about the stupid questions they get asked and say that people just come to see a show. But when you present the public something different, something better, the, the questions that come from them are better and what they learn, they learn more from it. So I was, we, we gave a bunch of different talks throughout the day. And, you know, I watched uh, Tom Leupold and Connor Timoney give a 20 minute talk on, you know, just soldier life on campaign. And I watched their 20 minute talk for an hour and a half because uh, people were still asking questions. And mm. we gave a quick talk on, you know, commissary stores and distribution of rations on campaign. And, you know, I just happened to be holding you know, regimental paperwork while we were doing it. And sometime after the presentation, one of the one of the people who sat around and watched and stuck around to ask questions asked me if they would be filling out a consolidated provision return on a daily basis, or if they filled that out maybe two or three times a week instead. And I'm, I'm wondering where these you know where these kind of questions are coming. Wow. from. When you when you present that that kind of information to them be it, you know, through a talk like that, or just them being able to look and see a regiment functioning and be able to ask, what is this guy doing? You know, why is, why is he over there carrying this, you know, box of 
crackers and this guy's doing something with you know with an animal or a tent or something like that it's it, it provides a lot more for for people to latch on to and delve deeper into and uh and michael uh what was your biggest uh takeaway too from all that um i mean for me you know i I'm always kind of in all of our, our team. Um, you know, it's hard to really articulate just how much dedication there is. Um, you know, there's guys that are taking, not just, you know, it's hard enough to get away for a weekend for an event, right? Mm. So many weekends before that we were out of Jeff Baldwin's, working on projects out at Kevin O'Yarzo's working Jesse Mills packed uh, 18 um, Home Depot buckets full of salt fork and saltpeter uh, three months in advance and then found out he had to go into work that weekend he got called on an emergency still drove out there and delivered the stuff Friday morning before he went into work and couldn't oh, even wow. go to the event um, then, then, like I said, the officers, the NCOs, I, I sent out weekly drill emails. Um, we had Zoom calls. They, they asked killer questions. Um, they, they studied. They focused. So it's like, you know, we, there's always so many sour grapes people out there that, that want to run their mouth about us and stuff and they say, oh, well, yeah, they, they like, it's all about the kit for them. Like stuff like that couldn't be further from the truth when literally, guys were spending two hours on, on an evening night that I know for me, I have a family. Uh, my son is six. It's a big deal. When, when I say to my wife, Hey, like uh, I got a zoom call this evening, we're going to be going over battalion drill stuff. You know, I don't get to see him as much. She's the one that has to put him to bed and do all that stuff that goes with that. And so, you know, these guys taking their time, their precious personal time to study all of that. And then, to execute it in the field. And then too, just the guys in, in the regiment, like y'all were out there in the heat, that battalion drill, like nobody whined, nobody complained, you know, everybody withstood everything the weather had to throw at them. Then we get hit by, you know, this tornado thing. And, <laughs> you know, I looked along the fence line at one point and it was the most hardcore civil war thing i'd ever seen it was just everybody had their hats pulled down over their eyes they're giggling about stuff because it's like you what else are you going to do and it, it just to me really showed a lot of grit um and you know, like i said there's there's always people that weren't at the event or have never been to our events who who think they know what goes on at our events and and it's couldn't typically couldn't be further from the truth so I, I'm just, I'm always in awe on Sunday driving home thinking about how how everybody stuck it out, you know, whatever the weekend had to throw at them, how our logistics team, you know, took care of. Because a big part of logistics for an event is just how do you deal with the monkey wrenches? Because they're, they're always going to come. I mean, we did that event, the final campaign, and it was like something broke every hour uh, on Friday while we were set. Um, uh. and, and it was like, we did what we were doing when we just took each one of those like potholes 
and dealt with it. And, and I was like, we got it down, you know, like nobody panicked, nobody freaked out. We might've cussed at each other a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I definitely cussed at Craig. I'm a thousand percent <laughs> sure. Um, probably shouldn't repeat it on the podcast, but, uh, <laughs> You know, there's just so much stress and energy and hard work that goes into it that, you know, for me, it's like I'm portraying a field officer. So, I, yeah, I, you know, I get to be out front and, you know, like get to be, you know, the colonel of the regiment and all this stuff, which is cool. And um, but really, you know, the whole thing is a huge team effort. Um, so, you know, if, if I'm the quarterback, it's it's nothing without linemen it's nothing without receivers um you know and like i I just i think so highly of our our team and and i'm always so impressed by them and it 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 was on total display at first minnesota so that's that was my big thing that i kind of kept thinking about after the weekend i'll share a little secret too i think uh mike and my favorite aspect of every event might be uh might usually it might be Friday night, might be Saturday night, or you know, at some point during the event when we're sitting and having a, a smoke in a quiet moment and looking at a regiment function, and just for a minute or five minutes, where you realize, hey, all those dudes that put in that work, this all came together, and there's people doing what they're supposed to be doing, and there's a regiment that's functioning, and this looks like the Civil War. That's, you know, that's absolutely the moment of every event. I'm sure it's Mike's and it, it happens at every one. But, you know. Yep. Oh, well, you know, um, uh, for me, um, um, as much as I love the first Minnesota event, I really loved the campsite for uh, the 15th Alabama at the Slider Farm because because we were off the grid a little bit there where, you know, every every direction you look, you know, you don't see traffic, you don't see like it really felt like, yeah, we could be Longstreet score hanging out at the slider farm. Um, yeah. Yep. That was, that was something special. And that's such a great campsite, man. It, it, and you know, we, we made a conscious decision, like with first Minnesota, we were like, not only are we not going to be, you know, off the beaten path, we're going to be as on the beaten path as humanly possible. And we're going to be in the epicenter of, the visitor center traffic, the, the angle traffic, the Leicester house traffic. Like we, we just wanted to be swarmed with public the whole time. And, and that's, you know, to get on like another kind of philosophical thing of ours is we really try to have a variety of events for a variety of tastes. So yeah, we'll have an event where we're right smack dab in, in grand central station of Gettysburg and and do public interp the whole weekend thousands of visitors we've done that at Harper's Ferry um, and then yeah then we'll we'll go and do an event like we're like along the Rapidan where you know it's an immersion event and there's nothing modern out there at um, and you know then we'll go and do like a, a picket post um, and then maybe we'll throw in something like Rosecrans Pursuit and and um, you know, have like some small simulated combat or something like that. So we really try to. Um, to well, all those are it. beneficial in their own ways. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's different, different 
things you get from each one, you know, um, different experiences. And, and, and like you said, it is important to have the public interaction like that. And, and it proved to be a big success for First Minnesota with the amount of interest. And even now with the amount of views of the YouTube footage, and like people are still watching and amazed at, at that event. So uh, great job uh, for everything on your end, guys, putting it together. And um, I know uh, we're winding down. I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. I have a couple of uh, more questions. But... I know um, um, I'll, I'll share this, uh, Michael. Uh, uh, I did show my family how they were, uh, my family came with me to the event and uh, they were uh, tickled that you had, you shaved your beard to look like the actual Colonel, Colonel Colville, <laughs> the first Minnesota I said, oh, those guys are detailed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My wife didn't like it too much. But, uh, it, it was gone by Sunday afternoon. I can promise you that. <laughs> which um uh another humorous uh note that um I, it didn't go over as well as i thought but while we were drilling on saturday morning i was like um how come this colonel's drilling us i thought he was under arrest uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh for those of you listening the colonel colville the first minnesota had been under arrest right before the battle of gettysburg but uh he was reinstated right before the battle <laughs> Pat Landrum might have killed me if I had uh, just turned over <laughs> battalion drill to him and walked off. So. <laughs> which, uh, which you know, I'm, I'm sorry to uh, add on to this, but I did when I read the uh, the history of the regiment and how uh, uh, when the when he uh, was reinstated, he went over, but him and the lieutenant colonel didn't get along. I guess the lieutenant colonel said. No, no, you. I don't. I need the paperwork to prove that you're reinstated. So you had to go back to headquarters to get the paperwork. Yeah, I, I thought, thought that was that pretty was, wild. Yeah, that's crazy to hear that. <laughs> but, but guys, um, uh, we're winding down. And uh, one question I had for you guys was, um, in your many research and many events over the years, do either of you have a, a favorite regiment? that you like to deep dive into or you, or you tend to go back to a lot for different accounts and, um, and, or is there any uh, books or memoirs on soldier life that you would particularly recommend to listeners? So I think, I think Mike and I probably have the, the same book that we go to all the time and I'll let him talk about that. But uh, my favorite regiment is, uh, is always the regiment that we're portraying next. <laughs> that's the one that we do the deep dive into and it, it was warlike and you know i think both mike and i probably spent a year looking at every file that uh, the 13th virginia left um and that was that was the regiment for that year and we just did first minnesota and now we're on to you know fourth texas and the bedford artillery for antietam um you know that information is mostly all published at this point and and now my favorite regiment is the 10th, uh, 10th New York Battalion for, uh, for Petersburg. So I think that's, uh, that's how I like to do research. I get, you know, hyper-focused on, on one particular unit and read every single surviving document that they left for us and try to, try to picture how that regiment looked and um, what they were composed of, you know, officer and NCO-wise and how they functioned. And, and uh, that's, how, that's how I work, so. Yeah, and uh, I'd agree with Craig. It, it's that's been a unique aspect of our event preparation is, you know, um, 
diving as deep into a regiment as as you possibly could to the point where you almost kind of like feel like you know these guys. I mean, I know when we did the 8th Virginia, um, all the field officers were brothers, the um, Berkeley brothers. And, uh, you know, they were all, um, I think they were all wounded at Pickett's Charge, along with like, I don't know, like 85% of the regiment. Um, wounded or killed something crazy and uh you know so like that for me like i i drove and found the colonel's um pre-war house um it's like a country club now um and so like just stuff like that where you know you you start hunting and picking and diving for pictures and trying to find images and going through on fold three, like looking through their files and trying to glean little pieces of information. Um, that's like really worthwhile and, and kind of re- it's rewarding when you pull the event off. And like I said, you, I feel like, you know, it, it's one of the most respectful ways that you can remember, you know, the soldiers that fought in the civil war and, and kind of have this, uh, you know, physical experience with them in a way, you know, you read, you prepared, you're out there in the field, you're maybe getting a glimpse of what it sort of might've looked like, um, what it might've smelled like. And, and so to me, it's kind of like this interaction you have with the, the scholarship, the scholarly side of things. And then like the physical tangible side of things and, and kind of marrying those two experiences um yeah like i think for me it, at more like one of my favorite moments i think in, in in the hobby was you know it we we delved so far into this one it wasn't even just delving into the 13th virginia it was delving into one day uh of the 13th virginia and it was it was it was a normal day we talked about it as like the last good day uh of the war and you know, we knew at 10 o'clock that they had a church service and they sang this particular hymn. And the colonel sat there on a stump wearing his enlisted cap because he'd lost his hat. You know, so, And I, you know, was doing something with, with a wagon and with a horse. And I heard that hymn and I could look over and I could see Mike sitting there. And it was, you know, you like Mike said, you almost really do come to know know these guys at least in that instance or uh or come to understand their their experience on that day and i think that's what's really special about you know being able to being able to pick a unit and just delve really deep into that unit and and, and try to try to recreate a moment um as for reading uh craig and i are both obsessed with uh john mead gould's book um it's his diary and uh, he was the 10th Maine Infantry. <clears throat> and uh, it's just, uh, it's one of the most fascinating uh, diaries I've, I've ever read. I mean, just extreme detail um, mm. in, in all of the right ways, all the minutiae you could ever hope for. Um, humor, like he, he's funny, he, he writes well. He writes a lot. Um, you know, it's a wartime. It's not like, you know, a recollection or anything like that. Um, and there's just really great anecdotes, but also really insightful 
things about army life um, yeah. that just I, I can't recommend that book enough. Um, and then, you know, one of mine is uh, I don't know if you've ever read Letters to Amanda. It's uh, Marion Hill Fitzpatrick's um, letters to his wife. Uh, he was in the 45th Georgia. Um, and same thing with that. I mean, there's just really great minutia. That's what always kind of gets me for a soldier memoir is just when it's deep diving into, you know, just some of the coolest, weirdest, like I, I, one of the things in Fitzpatrick's letters is he describes drawing a pair of pants from, um, the Georgia relief hospital association. He says that right in it, which means he read the pocket, I guess. And then he says it, they only came with one pocket and, um, no adjustment band in the back. Um, so I like number one, the fact that he pointed out, you know, that like they were Georgia relief pants and then that, you know, they were missing like a pocket and adjustment band in the back. And I, I just, like stuff like that, just I, I love reading reading books like that. Well, you know, uh, you hit a good point, kind of, because uh, when I was growing up reading, when I first started reading accounts and, and diaries, like I was always like, okay, let's get to the battle scenes, you know. Right. But you're at a point where you're kind of like the boring stuff that they're writing about is so interesting. <laughs> yeah. When yeah. John Meeskill talks about what's in his pockets, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. when you, that's when you focus right in. No, it's really something, and and uh, and you know, like you were saying too, um, you know, uh, your favorite regiment is the next regiment you're portraying, but but this gives you guys an excuse to kind of explore so many different units on both sides and in both theaters, both armies, and and um, um, so it kind of gives you that opportunity to maybe uh, dive into a regiment that you never would have thought of diving in before. So uh, yeah, really something. that's a good point. And, and to that point, like, like process for selecting units is very specific, but we, in a way we have control over it. Um, it's, it, it really is. And, and that, so it's kind of like spinning the wheel of fortune wheel to find out who we're going to portray. Cause like I said, the first thing we think is, what do we have access? What land do we have access to that's big enough for us to do what we want to do? Okay, it's, um, you know, uh, like Port Republic Battlefield. We have access to that land. Okay, now what happened at Port Republic Battlefield? Maybe it's something that had to do with the battle. Maybe, um, you know, there was federal infantry camp there two years after the battle, uh, you know, for a month or something, you know. It, we don't restrict it just to like, it's more like the geography is the most important thing and what happened there throughout the Civil War. And then from there, once we know what happened, then we start looking at the units that were there. And then then we have to find the right fit, which is, you know, we're never going to try and portray an 800-man regiment. We're not going to mm. do it. Like, it, you will never see us do that because we'll never be able to get 10 80-man it's just not going to happen. Um, so, you know, as soon as we see they had 700 guys, it's out. Oh, yeah. check out this unit. They had 225 guys. Oh, wow. What, what were they armed with? That's the next question. What were they armed with? Um, 
Oh, every single one of them had Mississippis. Okay. We're not portraying them. Um, or, you know, it's 1861 and they, they all had uh, triple breasted battle shirts. <laughs> like, so yeah. when you see stuff like that, it's like, okay, that one's out. Like, move on to the next one that's a size that we can fit um so our our and then you know oh it's the 18th mississippi okay here we go we're we're gonna portray the 18th mississippi let's start finding pictures let's start finding research like is this a doable unit for us you know um so that's kind of how we end up picking the units that we pick um for for like these events that we put on well, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> and and for uh, for listeners and uh, future attendees and, and those uh, participating in it, um, uh, as a send-off, could you guys um, uh, tease or preview uh, your next event, which is the 4th Texas and Antietam, uh, your expectations and, and plans for that? Uh, well, I'll talk a little bit about about the artillery portion of it, uh, since since I'm running that and Mike's doing the infantry. Uh, so for Antietam, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to portray uh, probably the first time it's been done authentically, uh, I would say, um, a full-scale, complete mounted artillery battery um, on the location where it where it fought. Um, and now, mind you, again, this is this is Confederates at Antietam, so it's not a you know full-scale, complete you know, by the book battery by any means, uh, but we're going to have exactly what they had down to down to the exact guns that they had. Um, we, we have a fellow who's who's making who's having a gun made uh, just for just for this event, so we can uh, we can have the right battery makeup that they did. Uh, we're going to camp where they camped. Uh, we're going to fire from where they fired from. Uh, for some of our demos, and uh, we're going to have some opportunity to get some real good uh, drill in as a battery uh, that uh, that we don't usually get to do, and quite honestly, nobody really ever gets to see. Yeah, and um, you know, for the infantry component in the Fourth Texas, uh, I'm trying to remember. I think they had maybe 225 um, the morning of the battle, um, so we'll be. Uh, well within that number um, they were 10 companies strong um, so we'll be camping so the Texas Brigade was engaged the evening of the 16th um, skirmishing pretty heavily uh, with I think maybe elements of the 12th Corps um, Tom Leupold is probably going to strangle me for not knowing <laughs> um, but they uh, they they're involved with skirmishing. And then I think or some like around two or 3 AM hood gets in touch with Jackson. And it's like, my guys have been skirmishing all night. Can we get pulled back? So they get replaced and they pull back to the vicinity of the real farm. So again, if you're picking up on the theme, we had access to the real farm. We picked the units that were at the real farm. Um, mm. So they, they camped uh, on the real farm the night of the 16th morning of the 17th. And then the, the you know famous action that takes place that they their bivouac is on the real farm and then they advance to to dunker church and and um you know to the vicinity of the morning fight on the left flank left flank um so we'll be camped out there um we're gonna be uh we're, we're working on permit to uh 
follow the route of the 4th Texas um, that morning, battlefield walk and read primary accounts um, and go where they went on the actual uh, left flank, uh, which is on MPS property. Um, then we'll come back to the real farm. And then first Minnesota, um, ABT is uh, going to have um, public visitors coming out to a couple scheduled programs. So they'll probably come out in waves um, and uh, they'll come and, and see battalion demonstrations. They'll meander through our camp um, and then head back to their cars. Um, and uh, so that's that's pretty much what the program is for Saturday is um, camping, cooking, drilling, um, interacting with the public. Um, and uh, and we'll also be Wide Awake Films is going to be there capturing footage for the American. Um, so that's another way that we can say thanks to American Battlefield Trust by um, giving them access to filming our camp and filming our drills and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, that's really important to us to, number one, say thank you as a group to ABT. But then also, if, if it's not our guys in, in the footage, it's um, people who don't look like Civil War soldiers for the most part. So <laughs> I, I always jump at the chance to, um, you know, be the ones that that end up on stuff like that so abt will get a lot of good use out of out of that footage in the future for fundraising drives and things like that us along with the american battlefield trust will be um posting the times and a schedule um and how to access for um visitation gotcha gotcha very good and so um um, I'll be sure to, I'm always tagging the notes to uh, websites. I'll be tagging the American Battlefield Trust website. And of course, for anyone that wants to see a lot of pictures and videos of the Liberty Rifles and prior uh, previous events, um, the website is libertyrifles.org, correct? That's correct. All righty. So yeah, please be sure to check out libertyrifles.org. You can see a lot of the um, I was showing my family the other day the whole uh, wet plate uh, uh, album on there. There's some uh, beautiful wet plates and, and things. Uh, oh, cool. Um, it, it's really neat. So, uh, yeah, check out the videos and pictures of past events. Um, I, for one, um, I can't wait to um, – I'm going to be attending 4th Texas, so I can't wait to be part of that. And um, I hope I'm in better shape than I was at uh, First Minnesota. <laughs> but I'm I'm looking forward to being part of it again. And um, I want to thank both of you for taking the time out of your evening uh, to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, this was a really interesting conversation. So uh, I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot, Stephen. Hey, no problem. And you guys take care. And uh, for those of you listening, have a good one. And you guys have a good night. Yeah, we'll see you in September. All righty. See you there. <laughs> thanks. Good. Thank you for listening to the Civil War Regiments podcast. If you like our content, please subscribe. You could find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. You can also follow or like us on Facebook at Shot and Shell Civil War Regiments Podcast.